0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 78. It's titled, What if the Economy Stopped Growing Permanently? This topic was suggested by Jerry and Tim, and they they phrased the question in different ways, but, but they essentially wanted to know what would happen if the economy stopped growing on just we didn't grow. In other words, the impact on the environment. How would we invest in such a world? And you know, is this something that, that is even desirable or even possible? And it's a thought experiment that Laprille and I have talked a lot about because so much of the world is based on everything growing, growing, growing. And there's a quote that I have shared in the past by E.F. Schumacher, In the book Small is Beautiful. Let me read it again. From an economic viewpoint, the central concept of wisdom is permanence. Nothing makes economic sense unless it's continuous for a long time, or its continuance for a long time can be projected without running into absurdities. There can be growth towards a limited objective, but there cannot be unlimited generalized growth. Yet our entire world is based on, essentially, unlimited growth. Things have to keep growing, 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 either companies or economies, etc. But let's look and see if there's another way to go about it. Is it possible to actually have a society that doesn't grow? And, and how would that change things? First, let's look at the traditional definition of what an economy is. It's the financial value of what a nation produces in goods and services during a given period. It's a measure of a nation's output. It's also known as gross domestic product or GDP. So if a nation produces a higher dollar amount of goods and services from one period to the next, then the economy grew. If the dollar amount that was produced is the same, then the economy didn't grow, and, and, and by dollar amount, it's, it's measured on a nominal basis, so before inflation, and then it, it's measured on a real basis, taking into account or backing out inflation. In order for economies to grow over the long term, you need really two things. You need more population or more workers, or you need those workers to be more productive. Number of episodes, I gave the example, if you owned a bakery and got up early each day to bake loaves of bread, and when you're working your hardest, you can make 20 loaves, and you want to get to where you expand your little bakery economy by baking 25 loaves a day. Two ways to do that. You could hire a worker to get up in the wee hours of the morning and help you bake, and then you could expand your output that way. Or you could be more efficient, perhaps invest in some time-saving equipment, such as a larger oven or a bigger mixer or some other improved dough-rolling technique. In other words, you could bake, increase your bakery output, your GDP of your bakery, by having more workers, increasing the population or increasing productivity. So when we talk about a world in which economic growth has stopped in other words it's more it's just not growing we're not increasing the dollar value of output in goods or services or gdp the only way that can happen is if the population stagnates or shrinks or we become less productive not more productive now there's been a prime example of what happens when a country's population stagnates and begins to shrink, and the impact on the economy, and the impact on investments. in that, that example is Japan. Last year in Japan, year 2014, there was approximately 1 million new births or newborns, and 1.3 million people died. And as a result, the population decreased by about... 300,000 individuals. Now the population, I think that's the third year in the row, the population has shrunk, but it's actually been stagnating for almost 20 years, and where essentially zero population growth or a very, very small growth. And as a population shrinks, and we're seeing this in Japan, that means you're having less births, and you have an aging population. So as there's shrinkage in the population, there's overall less demand for goods and some services, but there's also a shift because some de- services there's there's a greater demand. For example, there's there's a more of a demand for health care services for the ages, for the aged. At the same time, there's less demand for housing. I read an article recently in the New York Times, and it talked about how the Japanese government estimates there are eight million unoccupied dwellings in Japan, half of which are just sitting there. They're neither for sale or for rent. They're, they've essentially been abandoned because the the elderly they don't they don't well, in some regard well the elderly are dying off, but you know a lot of these homes are kind of out in in the in the hinterland, in the villages. In fact, my son Camden this past summer spent a couple of weeks in a remote Japanese village just, just helping kind of fix up some of these old houses that have been around for generations, some of which no one's living in. And and that's because there's just less people, so you don't need as much houses. Now, all things being equal, Japan's geography isn't shrinking. It still has the same land mass, Its population is shrinking, which means there is an excess of land and housing, so demand for housing is falling, and so the value of land can fall. And so one of the the concerns with a shrinking population is deflation. In other words, a fall in prices, and and you're seeing that. Prices in Japan have essentially stagnated or, or deflating also for the past 20 years. Now, there's also an impact on investments because let's look at the stock market. The value of a stock is based on its future estimated cash flow, so the theoretical value. And those cash flows are discounted or put in today's dollars. And so there's some estimate of a growth in earnings or the cash flow over time. Now, in an economy where the population is shrinking, then corporations have a difficult time growing their revenue and growing their earnings because of reduced demand. And so that that makes it difficult for the stock market to go up if the companies aren't generating growth. At the same time, there's less of a demand for the stocks themselves because the aged want more, they want safer investments. They don't want the volatility of stocks. They want to own bonds. And so you have this demographic shift from stocks into bonds. And the result you can see in the Japanese stock market. The Japanese stock market, as measured by the Nikkei 225 index, is trading at the same level as it was 20 years ago and is still well below the high it reached in 1989. Meanwhile, yields on Japanese bonds have steadily declined, from over 3% in 1995 to about 0.3% today. And so th- there's been a shift in terms of the preference for investments. At the same time, you have these this companies just aren't able to grow their revenue. So think about it, If you're saving for retirement in Japan, and, or if the entire world was like that, you would have to save much, much more because you could, couldn't get the returns. Can you imagine 20 years of essentially no appreciation in the stock market and and very, very little yield on bonds and how hard it would be to accumulate sufficient assets to retire? Now, another impact of a shrinking population, which to some extent is good in Japan, as you look at the unemployment rate, it's about 3.5%, one of the lowest in the world because there's a labor shortage. There's still a need to produce some goods and services. And with the population aging, there's less workers. And so you can get a job in Japan. So very, very low unemployment rate. So that brings up an interesting question. If anyone that wants to work can essentially get a job in Japan, and if you have visited Japan, and I have on a number of occasions, it appears to be a very, very pleasant place to live. And I recall, and I've mentioned this, I think, in an earlier episode, I had lunch or dinner with a friend who is a German expat, has lived in Japan for well over 20 years, is married to a Japanese woman, and he commented to me, if Japan or the Japanese have been suffering for the last 20 years, somebody forgot to tell us. Life appears to be good. Now, that's not to gloss over problems that, that any country has. But generally speaking, when you look at Japan, you can get a job. There's work. This is the, the, Everything seems – the trains run on time. They definitely run on time in Japan. The streets are clean. And, and when you actually look at GDP or gross domestic product per person, it's actually, it has grown. And so on a per, per person basis, the economy is growing. Just overall, the economy – has stagnated. Now, a a skeptic toward Japan will point it out to one thing that doesn't look very, very good, and that's the government debt balance. The gross government debt as a percent of GDP is 245%, the highest by far in the world. That's gross debt, though. What you have to do when you look at debt you certainly have to – you can't look at the the, the absolute dollar, dollar amount or, or the amount in yen. You have to look at it relative to the size of the economy. And gross debt is not the correct measurement. You have to either – you have to look at net debt as another measure. And net debt is debt – once you back out the, – just the debt that's owned by the public, not debt that's owned by other government agencies. And when we look at that calculation – Domestic debt or government debt is a percent of GDP that's owned by the public. Well, no, not not even owned by the public. Owned by the public and the central bank, the Bank of Japan, is 134% of GDP. And if we back out the amount that's owned by the Bank of Japan, so just the debt owned by the public, then that's about 80% of GDP, which means – which is about what the U.S. is on a net – Debt basis, and so you know, one of the big fears is, you know, will Japan default on its debt, or, be, or will the debt become unsustainable? And, and it's possible that Japan will default on its debt. Much more likely is the Bank of Japan will continue to buy debt. And it could roll over, and interest rates could continue to drop or stay very, very low. And that could go on for decades. And the question is, will that cause inflation or not? And for inflation, what you need is an increase in the money supply that that's so great that it starts to strain capacity. And But when you have a shrinking population and, and falling land prices... You don't necessarily have a constrained capacity. There's an article that I read recently in Bloomberg. It's by Noah Smith. He's an assistant professor of finance at Stony Brook University. And he he was sort of talking about this concept. And here's an interesting quote. He says, the fact is no one really knows what causes high inflation episodes to begin. The Japanese central bank is embarking on a road that no country has ever traveled before, a bold experiment to test the hypothesis that debt monetization could sustain an infinite ratio of government debt to GDP. It's being forced to do this by the dysfunctional nature of the Japanese political system combined with Japan's unfavorable demographics. I, for one, am interested to see where it goes. But I'm not worried. In the end, a sovereign default is just an accounting exercise— marking down the assets of some Japanese people and making marking up the assets of others. It would re- dis- redistribute wealth from the old to the young, and after default, Japan would still have the same factories, all the same land, all the same people, with all the same education. There would be plenty of short-term pain, fear, disruptions to the international finance systems, but at the end of the day, Japan would still be standing. He's got it right. that this This whole... Debt, any debt, it's just, it's accounting. The value and the wealth of Japan is their people, their education, and the land. And if there was a default, then there's a default. And and they wanted to get up the next day, and, and they would continue on. Now, you'd, you'd have to redistribute the wealth, but the value of a nation is... Essentially, the productive capacity, their ability to produce goods and services, that wouldn't change. Probably a good example is just think of a, a family farm. You, you have a house and you farm and you have young family workers and, and an older family, and maybe the young is, is going to buy the farm from the parents. And so they set up a, a debt payment, and, and for whatever reason, the, the young, it's a bad year for crops and 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 the and the children default, and they missed the debt payment and and so th- there's an issue there, and it needs to be restructured. but has the farm changed? the house is still there, the farm is still there, the ability to grow crops is still there, they still have the tractor. It was just the accounting between the generations, and a government default would work the same the same way i mean there there would clearly be winners and losers. But the wealth within the country would still be exactly the same. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. So in Japan, we are seeing a country whose economy has essentially stopped growing and is surviving. And the, generally, the, the welfare of the people is good because unemployment rate is low, poverty, well, there is some poverty. I mean, the, the people are being taken care of. And it it is not necessarily a nation in day-to-day crisis. And we can see the biggest risk is this huge debt balance in terms of government debt. And even that is survivable if there's a default. Let's switch gears, though. What if an economy essentially stopped growing, not because the population had shrunk, but because it became less productive? And let me give you a, a quick example. I, I have talked about the fact that I, I fly fish and I'm a beginner fly fisherman. And I, and I often fish this stretch of river on the Henry's Fork in Idaho called Last Chance or in the Harriman Ranch. And it is a fly fishing mecca, very, very difficult place to fish, because, but, it, but a great place to fish. The fish are very, very smart and the fish are very big. This is my fourth summer, this past summer, my fourth summer fishing this stretch of river. I have never caught a fish. I had never caught a fish on this river. Now, there's places I can go fish, and, and there are other rivers I fish, and I can be very, very productive fisherman. And if, and if we were me- sort of measuring my economic output as a fisherman, I would be a very, very unproductive fisherman on that stretch of the Henry's Fork and a very, very productive fisherman on another river. And if I wanted to maximize my productivity, I would go to that other river and contribute to the fishing economy. But I don't want to do that. I want to focus on this particular stretch of river. And this summer, when the green drakes were out and the fish were up on the water, I presented the fly in the perfect fashion and I had about a twenty inch fish grab that fly and take off. And I fought that fish for ten minutes and my my arm was shaking because that fish was so heavy as it pulled. And I eventually and Dick, my mentor was in the back. He says, if you miss this fish, I'm gonna kick your behind because he's been waiting for four years for me to catch a fish with him. And I, I netted it, and I caught the fish. And that's the fish I remember, the experience I remember for the entire summer. I caught a few other fishes other places, but that fish, it was the value of the experiment, the experience. It wasn't, from an economic standpoint, it was completely unproductive. But from the art, from the memory, from the experience, it was unforgettable. I've talked about Aristotle where he has said there are two types of goods. And one type is really what are called supreme goods. They're things good in and of themselves. We highly value them for their own sake. These are things that can get better with age. They're objects that are often overlooked by others. But when we hold them in our hands or wear them on our backs or use them as tools, they imbue us with a creative energy that feels almost magical. Helen Keller described these objects as they quiver with life. Think about if we had an economy where we were less productive, where we bought things, we bought less things but had a higher dollar amount because they had a richer experience. We felt better owning them. I bought recently a shirt off eBay. It was designed by Hiroki Nakamura. He he produces the VisVim brand. And this shirt is... It's, it's yarns or dyed. So it's... How do they call it yarn dyed. So each individual yarn is dyed separately in natural indigo or in a mud vat. And then the... The, the yarn is weaved together, and the shirt is made. And I paid a couple hundred dollars for this shirt, and, and it sold new for five or $600. And, and you might think, who in the world pays that kind of money for a shirt? But if you, if you look at the shirt, and you see it, it essentially quivers with life. And this is not a flashy-looking shirt. I mean, this is a, a blue and brown checked shirt, but it has a different look to it, And it'll last the rest of my life. Now, in terms of whoever originally bought that shirt, the impact on the Japanese economy or the U.S. economy, who was bought here, is is 10, 20 times, you would have to buy so many other shirts at Walmart to equate to that one shirt. The impact on the economy was the same. Yet the experience, whoever owned it, was definitely much richer. And that's when it comes to GDP in the economy. All we're measuring is the dollar value of goods. We need to measure other intangibles that don't show up. And so think about this. What if we individually try to achieve zero growth in terms of our economic impact by switching the mix of goods that we own? Or buy. In other words, we we bought less things, but we were much more careful about what we buy. We bought more, exp- more higher quality things, or we would pay up for art, or something less productive. Less productive. Let's say we bought local at the local farmer's market from from somebody that grew food in their garden, as opposed to an industrial farm. Clearly, that's less efficient in terms of the productivity, yet it can still have an impact on the economy. What if we ate out less and we spent the same amount on food this year in terms of eating out as we did last year, but instead of going to banal fast food restaurants, we saved our money and ate less frequently but paid up to eat at, let's say, a farm-to-table fine dining restaurant. If we all sort of did that individually, you could and I'm not saying we should, but if we did, we could, you could have an economy that grew, essentially didn't grow, but it would have less of an environmental footprint. And I think it would be a more rewarding experience for people. You would you would buy less, but what you would own would just be richer. We would feel better about it there's a quote by margaret howe who is a designer and she says when you experience something that has worn well in a good quality material that gets better with age that makes you feel fond of it it's like getting to know a person you really like you don't just dispense with them think about the oldest thing that you own and still use every day maybe it's an article clothing maybe it's it's a it's a fishing reel, a fishing line. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's an old sewing machine that you use or it's a, it's an old car that you drive that's still, I mean, our, our newest car is 14 years old and we still get pleasure out of the cars that we have. Although I meant we did go new car shopping but decided to stick with our old ones at least for another year or two. But the point is we have supreme goods, things that we value for their own sake. We've used them for years and if we as a society were more mindful in what we bought and bought things that were less productive, because they were instilled with more art and less efficiency, the economy would essentially stop growing. or could you know the population could continue to increase, but we'd become less productive, and the economy would flatline it would again, if that happened, would be a terrible place to invest because many of the things that we buy wouldn't be necessarily sold by publicly traded companies. And because the economy was not growing, you wouldn't see the the corporate earnings growth necessarily. And so you wouldn't necessarily see the appreciation in the stock market. But maybe we would be happier. And because, yeah, we would own less But what we would own and what we would buy, and and if we're buying things that take more time to buy, ideally you would still you would have because we're less productive. We there would be you would still be able to get jobs. You wouldn't have high unemployment because economy is essentially there's jobs for people, but we're becoming less productive because we're willfully choosing. Goods and services that take more time in terms of hours to produce and are less productive i don 't know i don 't know it it would be an interesting it 's an interesting thought experiment it 's helpful just to sort of walk through how the economy worked we 've seen a life example with japan we 've not seen in terms of a shrinking population we don 't have necessarily a real life example of a nation wanting to specifically become less productive and still keep their economy functioning, but doing so because we're valuing art more than buying the cheapest or the cheapest made good. Interesting exercise. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. Also, you can sign up for my insider's guide. I'll email those show notes to you and email a summary article. That's at moneyfortherestofus.net. I was reading the survey responses for the listener survey we did a few weeks ago, and one of my questions was, what's your investment philosophy? And many of you listeners are buy-and-hold investors, diligent savers, primarily using passive index funds and ETFs, and yet you're seeing your investment portfolio get over six figures, some of you over seven figures, and you're starting to think, shouldn't you be doing something more that is just setting and forgetting your portfolio's asset allocation? It starts to feel like you're, you're just allowing, you're giving it away to chance. You know, is, it, is it just luck? Is there something more you should be doing to take a little more active approach? But the idea of doing something more, perhaps changing the allocation, is a little stressful. And, and what I have found with the hub is many of you are you're doing the right things. The question is, do you have all the information you need to be able to do that? Do you know what your expected portfolio return is in terms of your asset mix, in terms of what's a reasonable range of returns based on how you're investing? Do you know what the investment landscape is? Do you know which regions are overvalued or undervalued? Which particular asset classes have a lower expected return versus those that have a higher simply because some of them are facing economic headwinds, some of them have more attractive valuations? And are you able to take advantage of those opportunities and minimize your risk of holding those assets that have a higher risk of some type of meltdown? This is not about market timing. What we do on the Hub is about opportunistically setting your long-term strategic allocation so that you maximize the likelihood of achieving your retirement goals. That's what we do on the Hub. You can get more information at that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. have not provided any type of investment advice simply general education and money, invest in the economy. Have a great week.